You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden, when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. Hey guys, it's Nick here. Look, there's no doubt about it. We are in stressful times. The stress, it's not going anywhere. We live in a high-tech, fast-paced world, and as much as we'd like the clock to rewind to a simpler, slower pace at times, the reality is, though, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to happen. We just have to be able to have the ability to handle that stress. This podcast is going to give us tools to address our own stress, and it's going to have us thinking about our physiology in a way that we may have never thought of it before. Some of the concepts presented by our guests are completely unique, they're thought-provoking, and you are going to love this conversation. Before I tell you a little bit more, let's identify who makes this possible. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Hardwick.life. It's like Hardwick.com, but Hardwick.life. As you guys know, you follow me on Instagram. We've got a pharmaceutical-grade supplement line that includes brain life, gut life, joint life, and foundation life. I've been taking them for years. We are very proud to have our name on them. And these new products include Build Life, it's an incredibly pure New Zealand grass-fed whey protein. Fuel Life, it's a small meal replacement that includes that exact same grass-fed whey protein. It also has fiber in there, MCT oil powder, and I love it midday with like a little matcha green tea powder, some water and ice, just shake that baby up. On days where I want a little bit lower calorie intake, I'm saving up maybe for a bigger dinner that night. It holds me over, gives me a little bit of energy boost. And then, speaking of energy, we've got a great pre-workout, pre-combat sport energy formula designed with neurocognition and neuroprotection in mind. It's got theanine, caffeine, creatine, and glutathione, which our past podcast guests have talked about the neuroprotection benefits of those. And I put a scoop of pump in with either fuel or build every morning, kind of dependent on what I need fuel if I want a little more energy. And I use Build on the other days to stop that muscle loss that happens overnight. We can't wait for you to try them. Get in on this action. When you buy any product and you subscribe, you're going to automatically save 20%. So you're going to want to go ahead and do that. You're taking the products anyway. I'm taking foundation every single day. I'm taking brain life every single day. I'm taking gut life every single day. And the other products also every day is for me. I have built a really simple program for myself. It makes it super easy to maintain my body weight in a healthy lifestyle. Another thing that I put into my body since the company was founded in 2017, Bubs Naturals Collagen Protein MCT Oil Powder. I've used it religiously daily. I actually put a scoop of it in with my build or my fuel to complement that pump life pre-workout. It's got so many good benefits, hair, skin, nails, cartilage. It's a very good product. I, I love, and here's how I love it. I put it into anything, water, coffee, tea, and you just watch it dissolve and you know that it's of the highest quality. It's absolutely tremendous. Everybody that tries it, loves it. You are too. They've got one, out, a new product out now. It's called the Fountain of Youth. It actually includes a 1,000 milligram mega dose of vitamin C to complement the collagen protein. And if you've heard some podcasts before, you may know that 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C along with the collagen protein can increase collagen synthesis by up to four times if taken an hour before a workout. So that's why I put it with my pump life, build life, and fuel life. Throw it in there, additional 10 grams of collagen protein. It goes a long way. And you have a code. I have a code. It is called Hardwick20 for 20% off. Hardwick20 for 20% off at Bubs Naturals. Okay, guys, our guest today is David Bidler. David is an author, coach, ultra marathon runner. He owns and operates the Distance Project Strength and Conditioning in Freeport, Maine. He is also the president of Physiology First. It's a nonprofit organization that shares leading edge tools to mitigate stress and anxiety and achieve peak cognitive performance with students, parents, and educational leaders. Tremendous work there. Breathing exercises offer one of the simplest and most effective ways to influence the body and the brain. We breathe every day. Learn to breathe to perform through their seminar series or download the Breathe to Perform app. That's available at the app, Apple App Store. They collaborate with pioneers in the field of stress, physiology, to design simple, evidence-based protocols to share with students, who will become the next generation of leaders. And as we're gonna find out, 
There are 41% of college students who deal with anxiety. Those are our future leaders. Those are the people that are gonna have kids. It only gets worse. We have to deal with it now. Their motto is breathe better, feel better, perform better. I completely agree. Follow Breathe to Perform, the breathe to perform program.com or at breathe to perform on Instagram and Physiology First, physiologyfirst.org, at physiologyfirst on Instagram. Guys, please welcome to the Finding Center podcast, David Bidler. Please welcome to the Finding Center podcast, David Bidler. David, thank you for the time. How are you? Nick, man, I'm, first of all, I'm honored. I love what you're doing with the show. I'm so grateful to be on it. And I love what you're doing. I, I came to you through the Breathe to Perform Instagram, and I just think the messaging and the lessons that you're teaching through that are absolutely fantastic. Give me a little background, if you don't mind, before we start on you. So, okay, so we got kind of, we have three different things going on right now, and I'll kind of share how they all kind of came to be. So the Distance Project is a strength and conditioning center that we've run up in Freeport, Maine. And this is sort of where all of this work began into looking into human performance, endurance performance, mental fitness, all the things we talk about in these channels. Mm -hmm. And it came out of this, um, out of a background that was the complete opposite of all of those things. Like I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up on, you know, a diet of Coca-Cola, Elio's Pizza, um, and, and, and a lifestyle that felt pretty legitimately crappy, like that only got worse as yeah. I started to play a little bit harder in my teens. You know, so when, when um, Coca-Cola and Elio's Pizza becomes night train wine and Newport cigarettes, you head down a really quick fast track to like rock bottom. Did you get there? Is that where you were? Is that where you were? Dude, you know, I left, I, I left school at a very young age and I was kind of in the streets of New Jersey trying to figure out life and work and all this stuff. And the culture was so antithetical to that of a culture of health. I mean, we didn't have gyms in the neighborhood. I right. think there might've been like one like Taekwondo place that we all looked at with great curiosity as to what the hell was going on in there. <laughs> there were liquor stores, there were, you know, it was just, there was, you couldn't find, you didn't even have like people out running, you know, the kind of things that were a little more commonplace where I live now in Portland, Maine is you'd look out the window and see people pursuing physical fitness, but it was completely absent in my neighborhood. Right. And I didn't know that this counterculture of working to like on purpose, improve your mind, improve your body and do it with other people in a way that felt really like mutually empowering and really, really fun existed. And I take that with me into my work now in, in remembering that so many people just have not experienced a taste of that, they don't realize that if you fall in with some good people who are ready to push you and push themselves, you, and if you are feeling like you're in a bad place, there's this whole other realm of folks who are working really, really hard to feel awesome, to share principles that are age-old principles, to build training programs that work, and to help other people, once you kind of find that in your own life, navigate the journey. So, you know, the, the, um, the background in New Jersey was really, really helpful for me as I actually got thrown at the like most out of shape stage of my life into this jujitsu gym when I was like 18 years old. Okay. And I was, at the time, I was chain smoking top tobacco. If anybody knows what that is, it's probably what's on the floor of the tobacco factory that they like soup <laughs> into a, a, a pile and sell for like two bucks. Um, I must, first of all, I must have reeked. I mean, I can't believe they let me in the place. Oh. And I'll always remember. I couldn't imagine rolling with you at that point. Like, oh, yeah. I, I owe them all a debt of gratitude for even <laughs> with me, you know? And, and I'll always remember that they didn't kick me out, even though I wasn't part of that cool club, right? I walked in completely mm -hmm. overwhelmed, completely out of shape, completely unprepared to roll with these animals. And yeah. after getting thrown around the gym for about an hour, and I'll never forget this defining moment in my life, Nick, where I had a guy on top of me and I could not breathe and I could not move and I, I tapped and the guy was like, bro, are you sure? Cause I wasn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? I wasn't in any hold, I just couldn't breathe. And in that moment I said, man, this is not who I wanna be. This is not who I'm going to be. I see that there's something for me in this place cause these people are not like the people in the neighborhood that I was spending a lot of time with. These, these are a different breed of animal and they're coming mm -hmm. to places like this to push themselves to get better. I wanna get in here at all costs. And through that mechanism of jujitsu, I found ultra endurance running. Fast forward, I 
I found that there were some principles that were working for me in my endurance running. I wanted to share them and I started coaching. And that kind of became, a, if you fast forward, the birth of the Distance Project, which was initially a training center that focused on endurance sports. And now we focus on endurance in life and what it really means to train for life and all these other projects like Breathe to Perform and Physiology First, they emerged from that environment. Oh, I think that's just fantastic because it really is. I mean, if you think about life, it's an ultra marathon. It's long and I, and I started to view almost everything this way. It's last man standing. And in a lot of professions, it's last man standing and a lot of hobbies, it's last man standing. And it's just how long can you go? What's your health span? What's your lifespan going to look like? And start thinking about, and here's where I'm at in my life, 39 years old, beat my body to shreds playing football. And now for me, I'm going, uh-oh, I've got a massive sense of urgency to increase my health span and really worry about myself when I'm 80, 90, hopefully 100 years old. And so I, I'm right in alignment with that, thinking of the ultra marathon, thinking about really health for life, I think is a, a huge deal. And obviously we're going through COVID right now and the quarantine, and you would hope that there's a massive awareness going on about, I need to start taking my health seriously because of the what ifs out there. And there's a, a ton of what ifs that exist. Absolutely, Nick. You couldn't have said that better. And I think that there is this massive opportunity right now. I think COVID presented an opportunity. I think that uh, maybe some time alone with ourselves during a quarantine for those who were, were quarantined presented this opportunity for self-reflection. Yes. And, and I think it also presents this great opportunity to, to recognize that if we if we found this, this tool of actually being able to feel more awesome, share it with others, and think of it from a long game perspective. Because when I got into the ultra endurance sports stuff, what I wanted to ask was exactly what you just, you just poised, you know, or posed, could I do this in 10 years? Could I do it in 20 years? Can I do it in 30 years? Could I be like the people coming into my gym who are 80 years old, bounding with energy, bounding with enthusiasm and ideas, and to understand that the other side of that coin looks like it looks like cognitive decline. It looks like feeling worse every year. And that there's a lot of agency that's necessary to take the wheel of your life that way is, I, I think it interjects this opportunity to say, those of us who see that and have experienced that, we now share these digital platforms where we can share our experience with one another and we can do it in an echo chamber or we can work to break through the echo chamber and get that person who's never tasted it. Yes. A little bit of taste of what it feels like to get around people who are gonna push you they're gonna push back on your excuses. You're gonna to start to feel better. You're gonna get hungry to feel better. You're gonna end up in these training environments. And hopefully if you do that and you learn from it, you find a mechanism to pass it on. Cause I think that's the circle of knowledge that we, we all sort of have benefited from and can contribute to. And that's sort of our goal with our youth focused work at Physiology First. I think that's fantastic. And I wanna to get to the Physiology First. I think it's a great place for us to kind of launch off from what's your What's your approach to puncture through the echo chamber and get to the folks who are kind of on the outside and looking at like you were as a kid looking at that Taekwondo studio and going, I wonder what's going on in there? How do you get to those people? How do you reach them? How do you speak to them? What we work to do, we don't always succeed at it, but we work to do is to really look at the art of language. To really look at the art of language, to look at the art of culture and to look at human psychology and how we hear things. Yes. I think one of the greatest challenges that we fall into now, especially with the internet being what it is in that certain algorithms will feed you a microcosmic version of the world. And before you know it, you're using the same language and you're seeing the same imagery. Yes. It seems like the world is trending in a specific direction, but the data doesn't necessarily reflect that. You're looking at a tiny piece of a global puzzle. It's to recognize the kind of language that hit me when I was a young person without the language bank around human performance, optimization, um, even fitness, and to really get to the heart of how you seek to make people feel. I think that when we use words that make people feel like we're not talking down to them, like we're not on Mars talking about this yeah. stuff, and you get to the heart of wanting to feel confident, wanting to feel powerful, wanting to feel agency, wanting to feel contributive, and speaking to people through simple words that make them feel and that are related to their goals and not some abstract concept. Then yes. you have a chance to walk into a high school in Boston or something and kick it with a bunch of kids who would have no idea what it means to optimize their neurophysiology. But they <laughs> do understand that they want to kick some ass in life. They do understand that they're in a kind of a jam economically and in a really rough neighborhood. 
And they do understand that building a skill set in a toolbox is how any of us kind of, you know, build the pathway to goals that are actually important to us. So that's what we seek to do is to really try to keep the language simple and, and, and to meet people where they are in this journey of everybody wanting something out of this life that we share and to not get too boxed up in the way that we talk yes. about it, that we're only listening to each other inside that box. Yeah, where it's not experts just battling with experts of who's got the minutia of the language down pat, where you're trying to talk to common folks who want some basic understanding of this so they can apply it to their life. And, and I, love, I love the Physiology First program. I love the concept of it, starting kids early with being able to handle stress and be able to work the mind-body connection and that understanding between exercise and brain health and life health and all of that. Tell me about Physiology First. I think it's awesome. Well, you know, Physiology First came out of the work we're doing at the Distance Project. We had a lot of teen athletes coming in and we have a very, very small um, environment here where we try to keep it tight so we can actually get authentic, honest with each other and build something that lasts. So we don't have a gym that you can just walk in, sign up for a year, slide a debit card. and It's, it's somewhat of a, of a team and invite only private training center. And that oh, allows cool. us to go pretty deep. Yeah, it allows us to go pretty deep with our athletes. We can talk about things like stress, anxiety, sleep, life. If we're gonna talk about training for life, we can't box it down to your back squat or your mile PR. Right. You know, we really have to dive deep into um, these, other, these other realms of life. And with more young athletes talking about the anxiety that they were experiencing, um, as we watched stati statistically, depression rates and um, anxiety rates among youth increased every year to really, really dramatic heights. I mean, right now, one in five young people in the United States have a diagnosed anxiety disorder, right? 41% of college students have a diagnosed anxiety disorder. A quarter wow. of them are on psychotropic medications. That's a reflection, a societal reflection of a place that we're going that's gonna yes. be very hard to come back from. If we can't meet that problem where it stands and say, what does, what does data like that reflect? We live in a fast moving technological society. These technologies are built to influence our behaviors. They have uh, an obvious effect on our physiology, on our brains. And, it, and, and the, the result of that that's being reflected is a rise in this thing called generalized anxiety. It's a rise in depression rates. It's a rise in the use of medications. I think that we had to take a step back and say, if we're talking about training for life and building a culture of health, that reflection should scare us all. Because yes. if the young people who are gonna end up in these leadership positions very, very soon are dealing with what's being deemed a mental health epidemic or a crisis, and we're not talking about it in a proactive way that we can solve that problem, we're gonna find that these young leaders end up raising children of their own, and that we end up seeing over the course of time a sort of decline in mental well-being. And that scares me more than anything as we think about like a positive, optimistic vision for the future. So as we worked a lot with the, the student athletes, when we do work at the distance project, we try to quantify things so we can get people results. If somebody says, I want to be stronger, we don't just say, hey, grab that plate and lift it until you're jacked. We kind of like look at like the, the like muscle physiology and stuff, right? If yes. somebody says, hey, I want to, you know, improve a specific quality that is physiological and biological, we look at the science and say, what is, what is, what is the best science sort of lead us to in thinking about this stuff? And when people talk about stress and talk about anxiety, we've presented at tons of schools in the past couple of years. I think one of the biggest challenges is more often than not, they're talking about an abstract concept. Right. I've asked students in a number of settings, hey, who here thinks that stress and anxiety are like major problems globally? Every environment we've ever presented to, all hands go up. Even the teachers. Them, like, you know, and I'll ask them after, I'll say like, who among us, like any of us can define stress or anxiety? And there's always this sort of question mark that falls over the room and no hands go up. We could probably look at this past weekend, which was World Mental Health Day, and start to ask the conversation about effective language um, related to that. We had more people posting about World Mental Health Day. And I think that's a very promising sign that we're ready to have a conversation about mental state. But I don't think we're having the same conversation. I think if you polled all Americans, for example, to send in their definition of mental health and like put it in a box, I don't know that you'd get two uh, like copacetic definitions, right? And imagine you did the same thing with mental illness. You said, what does it mean? And everybody takes this sort of vague and abstract shot at it. Yeah. The, the opportunity here 
is to look at the same kind of development that we look at in a gym environment, where we say, what are the physiological prerequisites to get somebody to change the, the composition of their body, to, to get um, to a different tier of athletic performance? Like what needs to happen? What environments are conducive to that? What practices, what behaviors allow for that? And what behaviors negate that? If you came to the gym and you said, hey, David, I want to be a world-class ultramarathon athlete. And I said, awesome. And you told me I'm not willing to, you know, I'm not willing to sleep more than two hours a night. I like to live on right. 81 ounces of caffeine a day. And I basically want to live on Nutella sandwiches. Um, what can you do for me? I'd say nothing. I, you know, I, I can't, it's not going to happen yes, for you. I can't help There's you. There's a set of behaviors that are requisite to become that thing. And if we look at stress and anxiety and depression, there are physiological prerequisites that are necessary, but just requisite to access mental well-being, positive Freedom. mental states, yeah. even clear mental states. So as we started to ask the question of what is stress and what is anxiety, so we can start to ask how we might build a training program to actually equip youth with a strategy and a proactive versus reactive approach towards improving their mental well-being, we started to ask, you know, who's doing the most powerful work on this subject? And that led us to a previous guest of yours and a mutual contact and an incredible pioneer, which is Dr. Andrew Huberman oh, yeah. at Stanford University. Yep. He was doing this amazing work, you know, to quantify what happens when you, you increase autonomic arousal, nervous system arousal, stress through a VR experience and ask what happens in the human body when it gets a little bit anxious. Oh, you see changes in pupil dilation, skin temperature, heart rate, breathing rate. Now we're getting somewhere. Now, now we're building something that looks like a conversation. Oh, when you yes. apply a little bit of stress or, or, or an anxiety producing stimulus, my body changes this way and that impacts my cognition, my focus and my mental state. And then to ask, okay, well, what behaviors provide the most agency in navigating your way out of that state? And the two big pieces that came out of that were the power of um, controlled breathing to take control of the nervous system and uh, exercises and vision. Yes. And we came back from that experiment, Nick, so inspired because if, if the winning thing had been very, very expensive Alaskan wild fish oil bills, I'd say, oh, it's going to be tough to scale this, right? It's going to be right. tough to go to all the schools in my neighborhood and say the only way out of these states Take is these. something that, that is not accessible innately in your body. Mm -hmm. But being able to control your breath patterns of vision felt scalable. It felt like it could be the base of a physiology-based educational curriculum. Yes. As we learned more about breathing, it also forced us to ask what happens when dysfunctional breathing, which is something I know you've covered on the podcast mm -hmm. with some pretty amazing guests, what happens when that is a barrier to mental well-being? We have kids who are hyperventilating 24-7. So I think that the opportunity to actually tackle this proactively is, is enormous and timely. And oh, I can't yes, very much again for creating these kind of platforms to get after it. Yeah, and I think one of the important thoughts that you share on your platforms is, and, and through Physiology First, is that no matter what we learn, we have to learn ourselves before we learn anything else. I mean, that's a concept that it seems as old as time. It's ancient, but it's been lost. It's learning about yourself and learning how you react in certain situations, learning when you feel stressed, and then being able to act on that and to say, okay, I'm feeling it right now. And what do I do about this? And then giving people the actual steps to do something about that stress that they immediately feel that emotion that they feel that flood of hormones that comes into the body for sometimes it seems like no reason, but then what do I do about that? So what, what kind of tools are you giving these kids when you're going to the high schools, when you're even younger, what are you giving them? Well, what, what are the reasons that we start with breath and breathing? Is, it is there is so much information coming at us in the data sphere right now that it's almost impossible to hear any of it, right? I think we're watching yes. that happen more than ever after COVID, after the mask debate, during the, the upcoming political debate, information is raining on us. Yes. And kids are being sold, uh, I mean, their attention is being sold left and right. You know, we help them ultimately understand the realities of social media and how um, ultimately manipulative algorithms can be. So with yeah, that, tell me about that real quick. Tell me about that real quick before we lose that train of thought, because the algorithms, I think there's a lot of folks out there who don't necessarily understand how these algorithms work, where you're essentially looking into a mirror, into a, mirror, into, into a very, very tiny cultivated mirror. Yes. And 
you know, um, a, a film came out, and I actually haven't seen it yet, uh, The Social Dilemma, that a lot of people are talking about, but I am, I am a big fan of Tristan Harris, who was involved in the project and his thinking. And one thing he pointed out um, last year in a great conversation on the Tim Ferriss podcast, which I'd recommend that particular conversation to anybody, it was wonderfully widespread okay. in terms of looking at these technology companies and understanding that to look at the reality of modern technology is not to think that a bunch of people are sitting around a mahogany table trying to get inside your skull every day and hijack the minds of your kids. It's not all that insidious. It's the result of a moment in time when attention became monetized and behavior became monetized. And this rush to um, democratization and demonetization of platforms, at least in terms of direct payment, like okay. Facebook or Instagram, yes. begs the question that we ask students a lot. And the question that we ask them is, and again, we will circle back to the breathing piece, but I want to, I love that you pointed this out. We'll often ask students like, hey, like, you know, Instagram, like, what do you think it is? Like, what is it? And if they, and that allows us a window into their level of understanding about the world around them. If they say it is a button on my phone, that's one answer. <laughs> if they say it is a social media, like it's always been there. Like <laughs> they've never had an iPhone without the Instagram icon, right? Of course, it's just a yeah. Of um, life. Right? It's like, you know, it's, it's amazing. If they say um, it's, it's, it's a tech company that was bought by Facebook. Okay, well now we're at least they understand it as a company. There's like people involved in it. There's a monetization model. If they start to describe these things as incredibly sophisticated advertising platforms, then, then we're getting somewhere in them understanding themselves in the middle of the digital economy. And then we're getting somewhere and asking them like, if a product is free, and it's a billion dollar company. Where's the revenue come from? What's <laughs> happening here? Where, where, what do you think happened? If, if the product is free, you're the product. And we don't, uh, I don't want to again, create no, the that's idea. That's a concept. These, right? I don't want to create the idea with these young people that they're like, oh my God, Silicon Valley is hacking my mind again. It's the reality of working to make everything free for the sake of advertising and then having algorithms make decisions, not people. So for example, one of the things that Tristan Harris pointed out is 70% of the YouTube views, like, like globally, are the time that we spend as, as a species on YouTube, 70% of the videos are driven by the recommendation feature. 70%, so I want you to imagine growing up as a young person and 70% of the books that came your way or 70% of what was on TV was simply based on what you last clicked on or read. Right? You end up down rabbit holes where suddenly it looks like the world is in fact flat. Or like a particular ideology is in fact incredibly dangerous and the scourge of the earth and you have to protect yourself of it. Yes. Or like the human performance and optimization and sauna and breathwork culture is obvious. <laughs> and it's not, it's algorithmic, right? So one, one yes. example we use with young people, and we've created this one, and I think people can relate to it is I, imagine that you have a 16 year, old, um, 16 year old girl and it's her sweet 16 party. And she usually, when she posts on Instagram, gets about a hundred likes on random posts, selfies and whatnot, right? Yeah. And she assumes because she made a great post to advertise her sweet 16, that it's gonna get like 200 likes immediately and lots of people making comments. And so she posts it, she gets that big rush of dopamine in anticipation of a reward and the reward is social approval. And any of us who are on Instagram posting anything understand what that is like. That's right. After she posts it, she waits a few seconds and the likes don't come. They dribble in, but they don't, an outpouring isn't there. And her heart goes from hopeful and excited to get that, that neurochemical reward and that social approval to questioning to wondering why her friends aren't responding, to wondering if people want to come, wondering what others think about her. The digital reality is that the likelihood of that post appearing in her friend's feed is minimal. The likelihood that it would be dribbled through their feed so that the likes come in a slow stream so that she keeps checking and checking and checking for them. And in the meantime, sees the backpack and the sneakers and the new cell phone case is the business of Instagram. Now you can get into a morality conversation from there, but the reality conversation is that is the model. The model is if you had 230 people who might care about what you said, and they all said so in the first minute, you can put the damn phone down and go for a walk. 
That's enough. You need to keep checking and checking and checking and having this neurochemical sort of reward dangling there. By the time they all come in, you've been on a hell of an emotional ride. And at that expense, you've been sold a lot of different options on things that you could buy. And maybe you clicked a few things to feed the algorithm beyond that. And that, that is what happens when you have billions of users on a platform. You know, again, there's not, I tell students, there are not billions of other people monitoring your individual behavior and screwing with your emotions. You have algorithms that will show you things like the things that you tend to click on. And right. what you end up with is the greatest mechanism for confirmation bias, self-delusion, believing your own stories, and finding a version of the world that's microcosmic, and simply not seeing the other one. So one exercise, Nick, and then I'll, I'll stop talking, but I think this is a fun one for anybody listening. So we'll often challenge young people, and I know that this is a very hard thing to do for anybody, but at least as a conceptual exercise, I'll say, you know, I want you to find a friend who has different of opinions politically and culturally on a lot of things. Would you switch your phone with them for one hour? Now, nobody's giving their phone away, and I know that. No. It's like tearing your soul out if you do that. Yeah, that's like switching my hand, man. I'm not, there's no <laughs> way. But at the end of the day, right, I think that they can conceptualize that they would open it up and see a very different world in that four by six inch screen. Mm-hmm. And they would think this is all BS. This isn't like my phone. There's a bunch of fictions in here. There's a bunch of stories, conspiracy theories, myths. It's so weird how this one kind of thing keeps happening. Yes. And I think it'd be a great lesson in the fact that if we want to talk about youth mental health or mental state, understanding that for the first time in history, there's another mechanism, looking and studying the mind, our minds, and working to direct it towards certain behaviors because it is the business of technology and social media platforms to do so. We've never had that before. We used to kind of look at the same reality and maybe argue about it. Now we live in our own realities and can barely communicate. Yeah, because there was the nightly news that happened for 30 minutes. There were three games that were taking place on television over the course of the weekend, and that was it. But now everyone's got their own worlds in the palm of their hands. And it's, I thought this was a, a super cool thought from you, and this is very true, and it, it's huge. The trick is to not believe everything you think. To not believe everything you think. I, I think that's a concept for people that'll go, whoa, my head just exploded because those are my thoughts. But in kind of the meditation world, you realize that your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, they're just kind of blips on the radar. And when you tap into the soul, that's where your real thoughts are. And that's where, that's where your belief system lies. It's not the thoughts that you have on a random day and it's being able to ignore those or cast them aside or just let them come in and float away and dissolve. I thought it was a, a tremendous thought by you. Well, so somebody said, Nick, that I really loved, I forget who it was, or I would, I would credit them, but they said, you know, to learn to observe, to learn to observe the space between two thoughts. And that's something we can share with students. When we think about the power of communication, it's hard to wrap, you know, for young people, the idea of sitting still is, is difficult in general, right? And to give them some insight in what it might be like to create a clear mental space to observe the reality of things around you. That's a language device that we've used where could, could, you, could, could you conceptually observe the space between two thoughts? And that gives them some idea that it doesn't need to be a constant information highway, especially if somebody else is navigating the flow towards a specific direction, which might not be your aim. A question that we start our seminars with, and we only started doing this um, fairly recently in the, in the, the reward in terms of engagement and participation has been big, is we ask students, you know, would you be willing to just, you know, hang out for a minute and run this little visualization exercise because there's no need to report back, right? I don't need you to report back or tell me anything. I just need you guys to like relax for a minute and run this exercise. You down to do that? Every student in every group of any age and any culture and any demographic goes boom, to the ground. And that is data, meaning they're exhausted. They want to lay down for a minute and not report back to anyone. (laughs) So that gets universal buy-in. And what we ask them to do from there is we're like, hey, I want you to just visualize the most awesome, rocking, like fun and fulfilled and valuable and useful and happy version of your future that you can. Figure out where you might be going. It may change a million times, but have some concept of where you're going. Make it yours and know that you don't have to share it with me know that you don't have to share it with each other. 
and know that if we could avoid Lamborghini awesome, right? <laughs> and get to like, I feel like I'm contributive and I'm happy and I'm fulfilled awesome. We'd probably have a clearer lens for the exercise. But go wherever you wanna go and dream about it. And they lay down, they'll do this. And when they sit up, we remind them that everything we're about to share about breathing, stress, physiology, the brain, the body, is simply a toolbox to help them get there. That's all that it is. It's not us saying you, you should feel less stressed, you should anything, take the word should out of our vocabulary. That's been a personal exercise for me this year, Nick. I think about Taking words to out. eliminate. And the word yes. should is a word I've, tried, I've worked to eliminate. But the idea that they can pick from this toolbox if they're trying to get to that place. Mm -hmm. And if they're trying to get to that place and they were ambitious and it really is the place that's gonna make their heart happy, there's bound to be roadblocks and barriers and the sky's bound to fall and they're bound to run into these obstacles. And we simply share that the people that we know, people like you, and this is a great example, and the people you bring onto the show, some people have been able to realize a dream and that's not easy. We're like, that's Very not difficult. easy. Otherwise everybody would just be living their dream. It's like, it's so damn hard. Mm -hmm. And so what we love to share with the students is like the skills among the people that we work with and know who've been able to bring that visualization to life. The, mo the common skill among them is that they have a strategy to take control of their internal state in any external environment. That is the commonality is that when it rains, you know, when, when, when you get thrown a, a wild punch, when something coming. never expected, the, your internal state, you have a mechanism to control it. And the simplest tool that we can give you to build that mechanism is the skill of breathing and understanding how it impacts the brain. And then you've at least built in a mechanism for them saying, wait, I want to get to my goal. There's gonna be some challenges. And a skill, a tool that I can use is my breathing and I'm already doing that. Cool, tell me a little more. And then we can begin a conversation around breathing, the brain, stress, physiology, anxiety, that actually puts them at the center of the narrative versus as a, a participant, a spectator. Right, just along for the ride. Along and for the if, ride, as if, they're, as if they're somehow failing at life by being very anxious in a very anxiety-producing <laughs> stimulatory. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's overwhelming. There's, there's just so much going on. I think it's wonderful. It's empowering for the kids. I'm sure with the amount of kids that you're speaking to that it's not, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's hard to get metrics on their success of reducing stress and reducing anxiety. But you can do that with your athletes at the gym, at the distance project. How are you measuring decreased stress, decreased anxiety, decreased levels of depression? Are, are you able to measure that? Well, you know, I can see that you have the two pieces of the puzzle. I think it's such a good question. Because when you can make a training environment, and sometimes, sometimes with the kids who get to do this in the sport world, when you can make it analogous to stress management, I'll give you an example of how we might do that. Okay. Then you can, you can go beyond, like if an athlete comes off of a hard workout, I want them to have a strategy to lower their heart rate. I want them to be able to do it expertly. I want them to be able to quantify that. And I want them to be able to celebrate that as much as they would celebrate 10 more pounds on a, on a back squat or two seconds off 5K. Because right. at the end of the day, I tell them, I'm like, look, the chances of you having to move something that's about 500 pounds off of like a shoulder height rack in your life are freaking minimal. Yes. <laughs> if that happens to you, send me a note. I had to get this thing off a rack and sit down with it and stand back up. Like that's, what are you doing? <laughs> that they're gonna have I to, agree. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, I ran into this obstacle. It was 500 pounds and conveniently placed on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I had to move a boulder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like the idea that they may have to go from a state of high stress to a state of rest, recovery, relaxation, and then go again. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of life, especially in the high performance sphere. When you're 100% oh, yeah. on, you got to downshift and go 100% again. So when we can give them that tool of them coming off of a workout in a state that looks about as physiologically stressed as you could imagine, depending on how hard the workout, right? They're pouring sweat, yes. pupils are dilated. They're in, they're in this sympathetic like portal where I think anybody who trains who's listening to this can probably relate. You can be in the busiest gym in the world and you see everybody around you and you got some good vibes going on, you're, you're ready to go after it. As soon as you hear ding, the room shrinks. Everyone is sort of a blur. And yeah. the world has gotten very small to accomplish this very sympathetic nervous system dominant task, which is the execution of maybe a high intensity workout, a particular lift, a sprint. 
And it takes a while before that portal gets wide again. And you actually pull these, it's almost as if everybody goes into their own space and I can watch them here in the gym. You can yes. literally see. Um, oh yeah, your own little cave. They've all gone away and into themselves. At the end, they all connect again and they, they kind of high five. When we can use it, that as an analog for how we can fall into stories, fall into tasks, fall into busyness, fall into stress, and let it become a cascade that without a tool set to actually get perspective. And when I say perspective beyond the psychology is can, can I literally, like Andrew Huberman talks about, can I take in the periphery of the room visually? Yes. Can I realize that the world is not my iPhone or my computer screen? Can I notice how that makes me feel? And if, I'm a, if I have a hard time noticing it, then you can use some of these technologies to measure it. I'm not, you know, not anti-technology that way. Some people have an interoceptive capacity they're very aware of internal state. Oh yes. Other people are not as much. And we only, like for example, we only train barefoot at the gym here. Okay. I can tell you the difference in interoceptive awareness around body weight management, around creating torque at the hip, like all these athletic things, because you've given them some feedback. Yes. Doing the same thing through using um, breathing strategies to drop your heart rate after a workout to elevate it, to get your lungs ready, ready for a change in a physiological change and rising carbon dioxide levels before a workout. These things, if they're analogous to life, using them as strategies to prepare for the environment that you're heading in because you want to succeed in that environment. Now I think you're getting somewhere. You know, now, now you're training for life and not just using it as a cool hashtag. Yeah. So in but, the, but, the, but that's the truth, right? I mean, life is, I go to a board meeting, I've got to present in front of my boss, I have a lot of anxiety, I've got 10 minutes, I got to take a break, and then I've got to meet with my subordinates, or I'm coming home from a busy day, and I'm sitting in the car in the, in the driveway, and all of a sudden, it's like, I know I got to go in, and my kids are going to be crazy, they're going to be wound up, super excited to see me. Can I take two minutes and go, oh, and just breathe and look around and catch myself and restore my energy in two minutes? And then go back in and be the dad that I need to be or be the employee or the boss that I need to be, right? So it's, yes, it's taught and learned very easily through the training environment, but taken to life, it's every single day. We've got those moments every single day to be able to unplug and de-stress and lower our heart rate and allow our chemicals in our body to kind of reset. And if you can do it quick, then you're gonna have a good chance of success. And you're also gonna have this like engagement in your training. You know, that's one thing I really love to see is the athletes who come in here. It should get better every year. You know what I mean? It should get better every year, you know? Like all of us know what it feels like to walk into a new training environment, just neurologically lit up. And you have the requisite neurochemical stimulus. Cortisol levels are high because you're like kind of scared. You're like, oh my God, this is gonna be so intense. Yeah. And, and then if, if that stimulus doesn't change, what you get is, suboptimal physiology you know you're barely excited about the training but it's still like hard <laughs> you're kind of like grinding through it you're like semi-engaged and we're really really cognizant of that i look at athlete engagement and neurological drive all the time so one one strategy we like to give the athletes as a thought exercise is when they're coming in here i always tell them look when you walk in this room there's going to be a party going on it's going to be ridiculous yes I want to know what you're doing on the other side of that door to prepare to be a contributor to that damn party. Don't just walk in and grab a slice of cake, man. No one would do that at a party. It'd be a jerk move. You'd bring something to a party, <laughs> right? So I want yeah. to know, maybe you had a terrible day. Maybe the world seems like it's moving at 200 miles an hour, but in fact, it isn't. The reality is that it's not. When yes. you walk up to the door of this gym before walking in, you can either do some breath work regain contact with reality yes outside of your individual interpersonal reality and walk in here present to the moment that's actually taking place because other people are going to be sitting here strategizing around a workout building a, a mental model for how they're going to attack it talking about the breathing the energy systems they're going to be strategizing it then music's going to come on it's going to be very 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 loud and fun and then you're going to be spit out the other side on the floor bitter in a puddle of like neurochemical happy juice. Oh, and it's all so gonna be good. really wonderful. I want you to be present to that so that you can do that for yourself. Otherwise you come to these environments and we become like the shamans. We put on the Wu-Tang Clan, we start to drop the weights and you've been transported into an otherworldly fun environment. But then you have to do all the things you just said. You have to get up and speak or go to the board meeting and you can't do that 
without the strategy of, I don't know, swinging a kettlebell a hundred times. It's like, these are state management tools. The yes. gym is a place to practice them. Life is the place where they have power, meaning and value. And I love what you presented on one of the Instagram channels is trainers are essentially presenting stressors to athletes and to the people that come to be trained. And that stress can be taught and learned and it's stress management. And then you go out in life and you handle it better. I love that thought. The, you know, the other thought that as I was thinking about people coming into the gym and through these doors, right? Don't bring bad energy into the space. Wherever you're going, don't, don't be taking bad energy with you. So whatever you're dealing with, find a way to put that aside before you come into a space and be sure you're bringing positive energy because you know one person with negative energy, it's infectious and it can spread. So you have to be careful with who you're even allowing into the room. That's why we went, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because we, that's why we went semi-private. We have asked more athletes to leave the environment over the past five years than probably most gyms. Really. Um, Good for you. Yeah, that's and, tough to do. As a result of that, we have about 30 people who are a team in the sport of life, who have each other's backs. If somebody texts somebody, they're there. And you know, when you come in here, you're going to find somebody who's all in. And we actually have 24 hour membership for our athletes. So I also am very aware of that. We have female athletes here who, if they come in at 10 o'clock at night and want to work out, they're going to find some kick-ass people who are teammates and squad in this gym and nobody else. The space is theirs. They own it that way. Cool. And that, that's allowed us to get to the deeper principles because if someone comes into a gym, all they want to do is burpees until they puke. And you start to talk to them about like, why learning how to read a room is a more important life skill than the ability to do 100 burpees in seven minutes. They don't want to hear that because they want to go do burpees in the corner. So we always have a joke here at the gym, which is, you know, you can tune into what we're talking about with this stuff, or you can go do burpees in the corner. You have two options. <laughs> and usually people sit around and dive deep. Oh, that's awesome. Tell me, tell me a little bit more. I'm fascinated about the business model. Tell me about that, would you? Uh, well, you know, it, it's, um, so the gym started and I'll take you through the, uh, you know, I was living in a tent a couple of years ago. This is about five, six years ago. Now, maybe it's longer now, God, maybe nine years ago. I'm bad with time. But I was living fast. in a tent. I mean, I, I had nothing, not a dollar to my name. And I was becoming fascinated by fitness and training. And I was actually training for an ultra marathon race. And I got a job at a local YMCA. And God knows how I got it, long story. But whatever the case is, I ended up doing this fitness class and I had the opportunity to pitch an idea that if we did it outside, if we did it in the parking lot and called it outdoor fitness challenge, we'd have a chance to do something a little bit innovative and kind of shake up the model. And it, it took, it took, and there's a lesson in this for anybody who, you know, feels like something isn't working and is about to abandon it. I hold the class and this one guy shows up, Wiley Smith, he's dressed in all black, like super fit dude. And he easily could have left because there was clearly nobody there. And he's like, what are we doing, coach? I was like, oh crap, I guess we have to do something. I took him through this entire <laughs> workout, right? And the next week I get there and Wiley Smith shows up. Now at this point, he could have said, all right, man, this is weird. But he goes, all right, coach, I'm in. And I'm like, all right, everybody. And we start to do warm-ups. <laughs> everybody, Wiley. Wiley Smith, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, all right, everybody, let's go. <laughs> and in the next week, three people, show, two others showed up with Wiley. Within a month, we had about 15 people coming consistently, working out in a parking lot, pushing wheelbarrows, like rusty wheelbarrows with weights in them. Before you know it, we had 20 people regularly. And over the course of a year, we had enough people to rent out this tiny lawyer's office. And I still can't believe we got away with this, Nick. It is a straight up lawyer's office. You can find it on Instagram. We tore down the partitions. It had like carpet. And we made it like a small invite-only-esque gym. And we just went hard and pushed each other to think and train and grow together in a way that kind of led to a, it only, it fed a certain group of people who really wanted to go deep in their training. They didn't just want to sweat. And yes. it, it got to the point where we could take a bigger space up the road here. So we have a, a couple thousand square feet, awesome training space for about 30 people. We don't advertise, we don't bring new members on. And a lot of our business is in Breathe to Perform where we offer professional development services to companies, schools, and teams around breath education. Awesome. And then the work that we do with you through uh, Physiology First. So it, it allows itself not to get bigger than it should get. It's like 30 people who are diehards. And I always say, if you, have, if you have two friends who are diehard, 
you're lucky. So I feel overwhelmed with gratitude every day because we have this team of people who care about each other and they really oh, want to go awesome. the distance. It's not just a hashtag. That is so cool. Tell me about the hypoxic training, the hypoxic warm-up that you're doing. I'm fascinated by this because I get on my Rogue Echo bike every morning, the assault bike people know them by. I get on that every single morning. What's the hypoxic warm-up? I want to get in on You this. know what? We, we like to add a little bit of hypoxic training just to increase carbon dioxide levels in the body before going mm -hmm. from you know zero to 100, right? And before suddenly seeing carbon dioxide levels rise and having to wait to get that second wind okay. because your pulmonary system is kind of... Tell people a little bit about the carbon dioxide training and why it's important to get comfortable with higher levels in your body. I mean, ultimately, you know, when, when we think about how breathing works as simply as we can talk about it, right? We inhale right. oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. We have gone to great lengths here to simplify this conversation by drawing carbon dioxide with like a big cape and giving oxygen a high five to demonstrate that carbon dioxide is oxygen's homie, right? Okay. It's not the yep. enemy of your athletic performance. Carbon gotcha. dioxide is what allows your body to effectively use oxygen. So as I start to train, carbon dioxide levels rise in my body. And if I want to get the available oxygen in the room, past my blood and into working muscles, I need to be able to buffer that carbon dioxide, adequate requisite levels of it to help oxygen do its job. So what we always say to athletes is as you start to work out and I put you on a bike, believe it or not, the oxygen has not left this room. It hasn't gotten sucked out the window because you started rowing. Right? All that you have is internally produced carbon dioxide and your ability to deal with that is going to ultimately be your aerobic capacity and your athletic success. Because if you have gotcha. to start breathing out of your mouth and blowing off that carbon dioxide that allows you to use the oxygen, which is requisite and present, then you get gassed, then you get smoked, then you can't put out power. And I promise you, you haven't gone to all out muscular fatigue. You just can't fuel those muscles. So one of our goals is to simplify that for the athlete to the point that they can feel it and not have to listen to like lectures on hematocrit and the Bohr effect. <laughs> one thing we constantly try to do is let the athlete feel the experience and give them, and I'll actually share an analogy with you. You know, breathing is like an 80-20 Pareto's principle thing. If you eliminate mouth breathing throughout the day, if you're utilizing nasal breathing in 90% of your workouts, and if you have the simple idea that I can jump on a bike and beyond just raising my heart rate, I can introduce higher carbon dioxide levels so that when it gets hard, I can effectively use the oxygen available to me more efficiently. And I do it every time I train. I'll jump on the bike warm up. You probably um, maybe one that we posted about is just doing something like simple box breathing, but on an air bike. Right, biking to a five second nasal inhale, a five second nasal only hold, a five second exhale and a five second hold and seeing where you can keep the wattage for two minutes is a phenomenally simple way to increase carbon dioxide in the body without going overboard. I, I, said, I said in a class the other day, I don't know if this is appropriate, I said a dabble do ya. And I don't remember what that's <laughs> referenced to. I just know everybody. Yeah. Uh, everybody turned a little bit red. I forget what the hell that's a reference to, but meaning it's, it only takes a little bit of hypoxic um, warm-up. You don't have to feel like you're getting low-grade altitude sickness. So oh, if yeah. you're doing some jump rope while exhaling, if you're doing box breathing on an erg or a bike, that's enough to avoid having to wait for your pulmonary system to actually like, be ready to deal with that rise in carbon dioxide. Mm. So the, the reason that we love to keep it really simple for the athletes is we've done presentations on the Bohr effect and how, um, how oxygen and carbon dioxide work to transport uh, how carbon dioxide works to transport oxygen beyond the blood and into muscles and people tune out, you know, they tune out a, a couple like, of like real, like breath people tune in. They're like, Oh, tell me more. They have their notebook. Oh, yeah. Come on. This is great. Right? Hemoglobin. I want one more reference to um, a study, but for the athlete, if they can feel the difference and the change in their own body, I'll ask them after doing some basic hypoxic work, do you feel more ready to train or less? Like, Oh, I feel more ready cool. So why wouldn't you do that every time? Okay, coach, I Let's will. Move. That's the 80-20. Yeah. It's like, I feel more ready when I introduce carbon dioxide levels deliberately. I increase them versus letting that just happen in the training process. And then you find an athlete who can now talk you through their strategy around time domain specific tasks. Take a 5k race. I tell our runners, you have so much opportunity because you know the distance. Yeah. If you can't gauge that and pace that, you don't understand the currency of energy. 
right? If you can't figure out that not going out all out at 100% breathing through your mouth in the first 800 meters is going to come at a cost in the rest of the race and you're puking behind a tree and can't figure out what happened, there's something we didn't understand about the physiology. You should be able to talk me through a 5K race. When you get to the dynamic sports of like jujitsu and MMA, that's where the real challenge is. You don't know how hard the other person's going to go. Right. You're coming into a you're coming into a really fluid dynamic world. City of life, you know? Mm -hmm. What happens when, it, when, when you can understand the duration? And what happens when you can't and it's gonna be a, a straight up scramble? Now you're yeah. prepared not only for the known environments. Oh, this is the Zoom meeting I have every day. But for the things you've never faced and you're going to feel the shift in your body, and you're either gonna be able to sit behind the wheel of that and take control or it's gonna take control of you. I had a conversation with a principal yesterday. She was in Phoenix and I was on an airplane coming back from Phoenix to Denver. And then we ended up back in Indianapolis. She didn't take that trip with me, but from Phoenix to Denver. And she was stressed because they were having their fall break right now. And then the week back from fall break, all the kids were gonna be actually back in school full time. And so she was stressed. And I said, how long you been doing this? She's like, this is my 32nd year. And I said, just trust your ability to scramble. You'll be fine. You've made it this. You've made it this far, right? Just trust your ability to scramble. Everything's going to be okay. Describe this. Describe this concept to me that breathing is a two-way street. That breathing drives physiology, but physiology also drives breathing. Yeah. So the to you know you just mentioned COVID and going back to schools. One thing that we built through Breathe to Perform is a COVID nineteen reintegration course, and we've shared it with teachers and educational leaders and students all over the country at this point. And it's helped them understand that two-way street because it's probably the most complex um, and important part of the breath conversation that isn't happening for the public at large. I think the public thinks about breathing and stress and anxiety, and they think, okay, I can use a specific exercise to reduce my stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's where a lot of the skepticism comes from because they kind of feel like, well, my life is still just as stressful and everything's just as chaotic. This is a hack. Right. The question that we like to start with is, if we can understand that breathing dysfunction drives stress and anxiety, that the way that you're breathing now might be the reason that it feels like life is moving at 200 miles an hour. It might be the reason that things feel so chaotic and unmanageable. If we can do some basic breath assessments and get a sense of that with your faculty, your school, your students, then we can make sure that we haven't like not addressed this at the foundational level because no amount of psychological questioning and work is going to improve a breathing dysfunction. Mm -hmm. It just won't happen that way, you know? So right. we love to, to start with improving breathing baselines because it's scalable among students. And, so, and then from that standpoint of physiological resonance, and that's a term that I hope, maybe it's a clunky term, but what does it mean to be in the, in the like ideal body state for the task at hand? Yeah. Again, if I was talking to you right now, my heart rate was pegged and I was sweating bullets, I would be, I'm sitting here in a gym on a stool. You know, <laughs> that safe. would match up with this. Yes. You can help students understand that if they can address basic breathing dysfunction at its core, they're going to have a different perspective and lens for the speed of the world around them, mm -hmm. for the stressors that they face and interface with. And that if they do that, they then have a platform for understanding a baseline that feels resonant. Like, oh, I feel focused and clear and, and I'm calm and I'm ready to like look at the world around me. Now you can build a skill set from that foundation. Now you can think about all the other things that make the brain and body work optimally. With our globe, we're building a global curriculum, a digital curriculum with experts in sleep, nutrition, exercise. Perfect. Start with breath, because it gives them something that they can feel, scale experience and use anytime. And then from there, they can begin to recognize that the behaviors I engage with influence my mental state. That's right. Ultimately determine my mental state. So where else can I clean up the, um, the behaviors that are gonna drive a state that feels anxious, stressed, and chaotic? Now we can buy, get, them, get some buy-in around things like sleep. I mean, that's free to improve as well. Now we can talk about the role of movement and exercise. That's free as well. We have teachers who are willing to like run these programs in school. But the buy-in that I love about breathing 
is a student can go from feeling pretty damn anxious to pretty damn focused in two minutes. And we can tell them you did that. You did that for yourself. You flipped the switch, you grabbed the wheel. You can always do that. And what a tremendous amount of confidence. What a, what a tremendous amount of confidence that builds. Anecdotally, I'll, I'll tell you this about the physiology driving kind of the breathing and the stress. If I have too much caffeine in the morning and I'm getting ready to go on radio or do a podcast or something, I'm like, I am so nervous right now. Like I am anxious. I'm having a hard time catching my breath and it's because I've had too much and my heart's beating too fast and I can't, I physically can't calm myself down because I've given myself too much exogenous energy. It's like, bro, calm down on the caffeine and everything will be fine. I love that. I love that you use that as an analogy because we can always use that with the high school and college kids we work with. We use it all the time because they understand that. And I'll ask them, as we think about language and the power of effective language here, because we're using a language from another era to talk about a new reality. We're saying that these kids have a mental health disorder. They have a mental illness. And we're not even looking into the physiological basis for a mental state that would make sense in relation to the environments and the stimulation that they're exposed to. So we constantly want to ask, let's look at the word disorder. I'll often say to students, imagine that while I'm giving this talk, my, my 20 ounce water bottle here was filled with um, high test, you know, ca- caffeine, right? I've actually just filled it with espresso. Yes. And I start to bang back basically espresso shots. I take one, I'm talking, I take another. What would I be like after the 10th or 15th consecutive shot of espresso? You know, and they'd say, oh man, you'd probably be shaking and talking really fast and sweating and nervous. And I would say, right. Would I have developed a mental disorder? I would have disrupted my physiology to the point that being in a resonant state was impossible. You couldn't access it. Anyone who's ever um, had too much alcohol to drink in their life understands that you are not in a physiologically resonant state and you can't just get out of it. You've changed your body in a fundamental way. A thought exercise I'd love to run by you, Nick, it's, it's, if you think it's effective. We don't know at this point in the game, nobody knows what that line of optimized physiology is, although technologies are working to quantify it and they're still very early and you can have a better debate on whether we should need technologies to give us interoception. That's a whole other, other rabbit hole. But for students to run this thought exercise and say, I want you to imagine that for seven days, you're going to be part of an experiment where you're placed in a room a little white room and here are the rules you can only sleep two hours a night you have to drink a minimum of 80 ounces of caffeine a day you can only eat fruity pebbles you can have as much as you want nobody's depriving you of food here but all you can eat are fruity pebbles and you have to spend that time either lying in the bed or sitting behind a computer desk for seven days kind a version of you would walk out the door in a week And you can kind of say, oh my God, I'd be such a wreck. I'd feel depressed. I'd feel like I couldn't concentrate. I'd feel like I'd been run through a washing machine. And again, you hadn't developed a mental health disorder. We just took your physiological state and disrupted it so far from a resonant baseline that a clear perception of reality was impossible. And if you took that exercise and start to rewind it, well, what there's an answer somewhere here (laughs) where there's an optimal level of like nutrients, sleep, movement, that's necessary for me to even access this quality of like mental well-being. There are physiological prerequisites that make it impossible um, if they're not met to have a state of calm, focused mental clarity and inner peace. And we're not talking about it that way. So we don't have students thinking of this as a proactive kind of behavior driven mechanism to say, what do I have to do to have mental health? Like, what are the requisite things for me to not feel anxious, depressed, stressed, and like life is going very, very fast. And I think it can be a useful exercise to say, let's create that terrible environment and then walk ourselves back to basic nutrients, hydration, sleep, movement, um, experiences that allow for a mental state that we're kind of collectively talking about as healthy. David, 
That was brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank thank you, Nick. I'm so grateful for the conversation with you. Oh man, you've given us so much to think about. That was that was awesome, and I love looking at it from the lens that we just did and thinking about. Wait a minute, are we checking off the requisite boxes before we're declaring that we have a problem? And I, I think that's really it, it's an important concept for people to understand. Is if you're not taking care of the daily requisite items in your life, you may not have a problem. Uh, you may Nick, not, you may not. I love that you said that, man. We're not going to get to the point where you realize that you're three ounces of water and two push-ups away from like optimal physiology. Right. But we can get to the point where we recognize that our behaviors are making well-being impossible. And if we don't change the behavior, we don't have an illness or a disorder. We don't have either the information, the tools, the ability, or the willingness to actually put the work in that makes mental well-being uh, uh, something tangible, accessible. And, and a part of our lives that we can access when we desire to. David, tell people where to follow you. If people are interested in our work at large, they can go to at the underscore distance underscore project on Instagram. I write there daily. You can see links to yeah. our other work at Breathe to Perform and Physiology First. And if people are interested specifically in this work around youth mental health education and building a global curriculum that scales, they can go to at physiology first on Instagram or physiologyfirst.org. You can see what we're doing uh, to make this conversation and conversations like it, like a normal part of the school environment. David, thank you, man. Awesome, awesome, awesome work. Nick, thank you so much for the opportunity, man. I love what you're doing. I'm so honored to be part of the conversation today. Thank you. All right, brother.